Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. My wonderful young friends, I'm delighted to have this opportunity this morning. I feel like Ed Gardner having spoken at your 10 stake fire, 12 stake fireside recently, and then being invited to the devotional. Ed Gardner had retired. His wife and he were home late one night. All of the children were raised and married, and so they were home alone. As they uh, uh, sat together, he reading the newspaper and she uh, working on some knitting, and it just happened that she was just a little hard of hearing. And so he read the newspaper a while, then he put it down and looked at her, and he watched her, and he got a little melancholy, and he thought about all the years they had together, and then he said to her, you know, I'm just kind of proud of you. And she put her knitting down, and she said, well, I'm getting kind of tired of you, too. (laughs) Maybe having been here twice that often, I can understand if that happens. I believe to use as a theme this morning, if I I could... uh, read part of a letter I received from a missionary. After uh, a few uh, introductory statements from him, he said, well, let me tell you something neat. The last few months, I've been really searching for an answer as to what I really wanted, wanted, not why, not uh, not only but out of my mission, but uh, more out of life. I was really caught up one morning in Helaman, the third chapter verses 27 through 31. There it was, take hold of the word and lead the man of Christ. I would like to use that as my theme this morning, the man of Christ. He said that was it, to be a man of Christ. There are so many men of one thing or another, but a man of Christ was a rare thing. I started looking for ways, patterns, etc. I went to the Beatitudes and remembered long back of uh, reading an article written by you on purity of heart. I found that article and literally sat and wept because there was the answer. As I read the article, I saw the word faith keep coming up. I went to Moroni's discourse on faith and ether, and he goes on and tells the different things that he tracked that morning, determining what a man of Christ should be. And so I would like to, for a few moments with you this morning, suggest what I think the man of Christ is. I might begin by telling of the experience one man had. He came home from work one day, and he went to his wife, and he said, you know, I think a a woman ought to serve her husband, you know, in the order of the priesthood in the church. And so if it's all right with you when I come home at night, I'll just stand in the entry hall, and you'll come up and give me a hug and a kiss, and then you'll usher me into the living room and seat me in the big easy chair, and then you would bring the stool over, and then you'd take my shoes off and put my slippers on, and then you would bring the uh, newspaper for me, And then to climax this great achievement, you'll bring a nice, tall, cool lemonade in. And she agreed. And so the next night he came home from work and stood in the hallway and nothing happened. So he went and sat down in the big easy chair and he brought the stool over and he took his shoes off and put his slippers on. And then he went and got the newspaper. And then he went into the kitchen to get a drink. And when he was there, he said to his wife, I thought you agreed with me that it would be appropriate for a wife to serve her husband like that. And she said, well, I think it's a good idea. And so he thought, well, she just forgot. So the next night again, he stood in the hall and nothing happened. So he decided to change his strategy. He decided to love her into it. And when Saturday came, she started getting cleaned up and 
ready to go to the store. And so he, he started to change. And she said, where are you going? He said, well, I want to go to the store with you. When she got over the shock, they went to the store together. <laughs> After uh, they got to the store where she thought, well, he's going to check and see if I'm paying the right price for the groceries. But he was a perfect gentleman up and down the aisle, never a complaint. They got to the check stand. He thought, well, she'll blow her stack. He'll, bl he'll blow his stack when he has to write out the check for the groceries. But no problem. Again, a perfect gentleman. They went home. He helped her in with the groceries. He helped her put them, put them away. They said during the next six weeks, he was absolutely the perfect husband. He helped her do the dishes. He helped her scrub the floors. He washed the windows. He kept the lawn the way it ought to be in the garage. They said that he, in the bedroom, he actually threw his underwear and stockings in the hamper, not near it, but actually in the hamper. <laughs> they said he even squeezed the toothpaste at the bottom of the tube. And finally it happened. Six weeks later, home from work, met in the hallway, a big hug and a squeeze, ushered into the living room, seated in the big easy chair, the stool brought over, shoes taken off, slippers put on, a newspaper brought in, and then finally to climax this great achievement, a nice tall cool lemonade brought in. Only instead of him in the chair, it was her. <laughs> and the great thing about that is that's the way he wanted it. You see, I believe the man of Christ is so involved in serving other people that he loses himself in that service and doesn't much really care what takes place in his life because as you sow, so shall you reap, and all these things will come back. You recall David as he was anointed king by uh, Samuel and then uh, being on the on, on, as the shepherd boy, his older brothers being involved in the service of Saul, and the armies of the Philistines were gathered on one mountain, and the armies and the hosts of Israel were gathered on the other mountain. And as you recall, there was a champion went out from uh, the Philistines, and he was six cubits tall. Now, as I understand a cubit, it is the distance from, from your elbow to about the end of your forefinger. And so that would make him uh, probably over eight feet tall, depending how long that part of the uh, body was and the individual measuring. And uh, so anyway, uh, Goliath had on this heavy uh, armor, and he had a man to carry his shield. And as he walked back and forth, and I should tell you about his uh, spear. They didn't say it was some kind of a rod with a heavy end. They described his spear as a weaver's beam, like unto a weaver's beam. Now, you know what a beam is, and so I imagine this was some formidable kind of a weapon. And he marched back and forth, and he called to the Israelites, uh, saying, I'm a Philistine. Send down one of your men, and I'll fight him to the death. And should he win, then we will be thy servants. And should I win, then you will be our servants, the servants of the Philistines. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he walked up and down. Now, I should stop here just long enough to tell you, I can't imagine that if President Kimball had been up on the mountain on the side of the Israelites, even in his 80s, that he would not have tolerated Goliath cursing the God of Israel and taunting the Israelites and no one with enough courage. I believe President Kim would have gone right down off the mountain to meet Goliath. Or Captain Moroni from the Book of Mormon. You know what he would have said? Well, first he would have boomed down off the mountain. He would have said, we will end the conflict. I believe he would have uh, <laughs> gone down to take care of Goliath. But anyway, David, uh, taking care of the sheep, and his father called him and gave him an ephah of parched corn to take to his brethren and ten loaves. And then he gave ten cheeses 
that might be delivered to the chief of the thousands of men, the captain of the thousands of men. And so uh, David and uh, a man with him went in the carriage. And when they arrived, David climbed out of the carriage and left uh, the cheeses and the cakes and the other goods in the, in the uh, carriage. And then he went to see what was going on. And as he stood there, the man Goliath came out. And he heard Goliath's taunts and the cursing of Goliath. And uh, he saw that, that the Israelites fled from before Goliath. And they were fray, afraid. And uh, he stood there and listened. And then the men told him the story. And then he sa they said to him, Whosoever would slayeth Goliath, in that same hour the king will make him enrich him and will make him uh, uh, or make his father a free man and will give unto him his daughter. And so, uh, again, David rehearsed what those gifts were, and he wasn't interested in the gifts. But then he said something very significant. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And I guess others heard him, and they saw in David the courage that hadn't been found in others. And so they went and told King Saul. And Saul called that David should come forth. And David went to King Saul and... and uh, offered that he would go down and fight Goliath. And King Saul said, Well, thou art but a youth. It would not be good to send thee against this man, for he is a man of war since his youth. And then David told of slaying the, the, the lion and the bear and said, The Lord will deliver this man into my hands. And so he persuaded King Saul, and King Saul let him go forth as uh, they put on uh, David all of the armor of King Saul. And you can imagine it was probably the best armor that, that could be had. The king would wear the, the best of everything. And so the king, king's armor was put upon David. But he essayed not to go with this armor. Uh, I think sometimes those of us around, when we see someone uh, and they're willing to do something, we, we impose upon them our ideas and standards, and that handicaps them by imposing upon them the things which we think they ought to do when we finally find the one man who is courageous enough. He took off the armor, and he put his uh, shepherd's bag over his shoulder. He took a staff, and then he went to the brook and selected five smooth stones. And then he started toward Goliath. And the scripture says, and when he drew nigh unto Goliath, Goliath came to him. And then when Goliath could see who this was, and by the way, Goliath's shield bearer was out in front of him. And then Goliath. And mind you, if you can catch the picture of the shepherd boy with a staff and with a, a uh, shepherd's bag over his shoulder and Goliath with all, with all of his armor over eight feet tall, he said, am I a dog that you would come before me with staves? And he said, uh, today the birds will feed upon thy bones, the flesh from thy bones, and the beasts will feed upon thy flesh. And David said, you come to me with, with a shield and with a sword and with a spear. But I come to you in the name of the living God of the hosts of the armies of Israel. And he said, uh, This day shall the God of Israel deliver thee into my hands, and I will remove thy head from thy body. I don't know that that scared Goliath much, but at least it was a threat. And uh, he said... Uh, and the beasts of the fields and the fowls of the air shall feed upon the bodies of all of the army of, of the Philistines. And then this, of course, must have provoked Goliath a little, and he increased his speed toward Goliath, or, or toward David. But the scripture said, 
but David ran to Goliath. I don't know if you can catch the, the image of what that would be, but he ran to Goliath, and he selected from his shepherd's bag one of the stones and put it in his, his uh, sling, and the scripture said, and he slang it, and that's the exact word, he slang it at Goliath. And uh, Elder Sill said that when it struck Goliath, that that was probably the first time that such a thing had ever entered Goliath's head. <laughs> and then Goliath, as you recall, toppled to the earth. David ran and stood on him, not having a sword, removed Goliath's sword from the hilt, and severed his head from his body. And then all of the hosts of the Philistines fled in fear and terror. Now... I want to make a point. The man of Christ, I believe, is one in our generation who does get involved. David was young. He wasn't a member of the army or a, a part of the army. He easily could have stood and watched this thing go on and listened and maybe in a frightful way climbed back in the carriage and gone back to his father and back to his sheep. The man of Christ does get involved. Now, a little further in the scripture, you recall where, Bel, or where uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king has built a giant uh, uh, golden image and demands that all of his officers and sheriffs and governors and all of the key people in that entire land come and worship the golden image. And uh, so as he prepares it, and by the way, it is uh, three score cubits high, so that would be something like 80 or 90 feet high, and it's six cubits across, so I suppose it was eight feet across. And all of the sheriffs and the governors and the princes and the rulers came forth at the dedication. And then an herald stood up, and he said uh, to all of the hosts of those who were there, and mind you, these are just the, the leaders, the, the leaders of all of the uh, kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar had been brought forth. And so he said, the herald said, at the time ye hear the uh, cornet and the flute and the harp and the sackbut and the psaltery and all the different musical instruments, then you will bow down and worship the golden image. And if not, in that same hour you shall be delivered under the burning fiery furnace. Now, I'd suggest that's a pretty good incentive for most of us to, to kneel down and, and worship the golden image. There were... Uh, uh, those who sounded the, the cornet and the harp and the sackbut and the psaltery and the dulcimer and the other musical instruments. And then uh, all those who heard bowed down before the golden image and worshipped the golden image as per the uh, king's instruction. And there were certain men who went to Nebuchadnezzar after, and they said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever. And then they told uh, King Nebuchadnezzar that there were three Jews who were uh, over the province of Babylon, and they would not bow down before the golden image. And so Nebuchadnezzar in his wrath and in the fury of his, his heart called that these three men should be brought before him, and they were brought before him. And he said, it has been told to me that you would not bow down and worship the golden image. And apparently he gave them another chance. He said, now when you hear the cornet and the flute and the sackbut and the psaltery and the harp and so forth, you will bow down and worship the golden image. Now mind you, here's the king with a scepter in his hand, the all-powerful ruler. And then beside him and around him are all of the leading citizens of the communities. The sheriffs and the officers and the governors and the princes and the presidents were all gathered together. And I suppose when we think about social pressure, 
I don't know that there has been an experience that would, would uh, equate to the social pressure and, and that pressure that they must have felt at that minute. And he said, if at that time ye bow down and worship the golden image, then well with you. But if not, then at that same hour shall ye be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Now mark the words. Nebuchadnezzar, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said unto King Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. For if it so be, the God of heaven can deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not bow down and worship the golden image. And so again, in his wrath, the king commanded that the furnace be heated seven times more than it was wont to be heated. He had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound. And then he had men, the mightiest men in his kingdom, put on heavy coats and hats and hosen that they might not be burned also as they delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the burning fiery furnace. But so great was the heat of the furnace as they were cast into the furnace that the mighty men were also uh, burned in the fire and they died. And then, sh then the King Nebuchadnezzar stood back and apparently he could see into the, the furnace and he said, were there not three? Did we not cast in three into the fiery furnace? And behold, I see four. And one of them has a countenance like unto the Son of God. And then he commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of the burning fiery furnace. And they came out. And not a, a hair of their head had even been singed. And nor their clothing had the slightest smell of smoke. And so King Nebuchadnezzar then declared that their God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, was the only true and living God. And mind you, watch the giant swing in King Nebuchadnezzar. And all those who will not bow down and worship the true and living God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be uh, burned on a dunghill. Well, that's King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the point I would like to make again here were three men minding their own business, carrying on the affairs as they had jurisdiction to do under King Nebuchadnezzar in a way that was right. This incident was imposed upon them. And uh, I suppose if they could have uh, stirred around it, they would have done that, but they did not. And yet, not like David, who ran to meet Goliath, it was imposed upon them, and yet they have and maintained their integrity and they would not, <clears throat> would not compromise that integrity even for their own lives. I believe the man of Christ does not compromise his integrity no matter what the cost is. And as you know, in life, there are many things that we can uh, have in this life if we will pay the price of compromise. Things of a lesser value than those which we really uh, would have if we followed the Lord's commandments. Someone said, don't ever want anything so bad. The man that had power to give it to you could take from you the thing which you must not lose, and that's your own free agency, your own pride, and your integrity. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a son who was Belshazzar the king, and Belshazzar the king uh, had a feast one night and invited a thousand of his governors and sheriffs and rulers and princes and their concubines and wives, and they had a giant feast, and they had... Uh, uh, wine that they drank with and celebrated with. 
And then King Belshazzar ca caused that the uh, servants should bring the golden vessels that had been taken, plundered from the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar the king. And they were brought forth and filled with wine and the concubines and, and wives and the sheriffs and rulers drank from these golden vessels. And then they worshipped the gods of gold and brass and silver and, and wood and ivory and so forth. And then as they were worshiping in this way, the finger of a man's hand appeared near the candlestick and rolled on the plaster of the wall. And the scripture suggests that uh, Belshazzar the king feared greatly, that the visage of his countenance changed and uh, that his knees smote one against the other. And I think that's a fairly accurate description of some man who is quite uh, fearful. And as he uh, saw this, and then the hand disappeared and the writing remained, he called that the soothsayers and the priests and the astrologers should be brought forth to decipher or interpret these writings. They all came and none could decipher or translate. And finally the queen came in and she re recalled that there was one Daniel who could interpret dreams. So Daniel was brought forth and the king said, to whomsoever, or if you, Daniel, can interpret these things, he said, a gold chain shall be placed about your neck, and you shall re be third in command of the kingdom, and you will be dressed in scarlet uh, robes. Daniel said, keep thy gifts unto thyself. I will interpret the dream. And then he told Belshazzar, rehearsed with Belshazzar, some of the things that had been wrong in his, uh, during his kingship, and then he said, this is the interpretation. The words, meany, meany, tekel, you far sin. Meany, the Lord hath numbered the days of thy kingdom, and it is finished. Tekel, thou hast been weighed in the, in the balance and hast been found wanting. Perez, the, the Persians and, me, and Medians, Medes, Medes, shall this day overthrow the kingdom. And that night, uh, Belshazzar the king was slain. Darius the, the Median came and took over the kingdom, and the kingdom was lost. And now Daniel had an excellent spirit, as the scripture described him. And so he was one of three presidents who were over 120 princes. And this is the point I want to make. The 120 princes resented that Daniel had this high place. And so they decided to have him removed. So they sought to find fault or occasion against Daniel, but they could not find fault or occasion against Daniel. And so they decided that they would find fault and occasion against the God of Daniel, the man of Christ who has an excellent spirit, as, does, as did Daniel. You cannot find fault or occasion against them because they're they are of a, the caliber of person that those things are not part of their lives. Now, as I have thought about the man of Christ, I have thought about many other things. You may recall uh, a Dr. Uh, Kenneth McFarland, I guess one of the international uh, uh, renowned speakers of all time, just a great super patriot and, and a wonderful individual. He told uh, two incidents that I'd like to share with you this morning. One, on a, a farm near uh, somewhere in the central part of Kansas, they had uh, what they called pole pond. And this pole pond was a large pond and, and it was fairly deep. And so they put a pole out at a certain place 
so that as the children, the boys in the community would, would swim, if they couldn't swim very well, they wouldn't go out past the pole because there was a drop-off and it was well over their heads. And as they were swimming one day, one of the boys got a little too far out, went around the pole, and all of a sudden had stepped off of the drop-off point and was in water over his head. A farmer walking nearby heard the rest of the boys uh, yelling for help. He ran as quickly as he could and saw the boy drowning. He himself, being unable to swim, went out into the water and took the boy, he himself now in water over his head, and with his mighty arm threw the boy back in the shallow water. He himself drowned. During that next week, the boys in the community and the youth talked about nothing else except this brave man who had gladly given his life in an instant. I believe the man of Christ would do just exactly that. And then Dr. McFarland had been invited to speak at the uh, college at, Connie, uh, at the uh, graduation exercise at, in, in Coffeyville, Kansas, as he uh, was preparing to give the talk. He uh, was meeting with Dean Blakesmeyer. They talked about the uh, arrangements for the next day, and Nancy Hollingsworth came in. And she went over to the desk, and she ordered her regalia. And then she said, one seat in the parents' section, please. And uh, Dr. McFarland said, I remember well that she asked for only one seat. Soon he said, uh, she passed and left, and Dean Blakesmeyer and I talked for a few minutes more. And then I left and went out in the hall, and Nancy was waiting. And she said, Dr. McFarland, I've got a special favor to ask of you. Would you mind doing something for me? And he said, well, if I possibly can. That's what it's all about is to help people. I'll do it if I can. She said, uh, can I share a story with you? And he said, yes. She said, many years ago, just after I was born, she said, my father worked in the railroad. And somehow he slipped under the, the, the train and was killed. And so my mother started raising the three children, Richard and my brother Tommy and me. And she said, uh, she did that through the years. She'd go to work at a, an apparel shop, and then she'd come home in the evening, and, and she'd stay with us. And she said, we just loved her. And she said, I, we didn't have one other living relative except my uh, mother's brother, Uncle Ben. And he was a drunken ne'er-do-well. And Uncle Ben, uh, it seemed uh, mother didn't care to have, have him come to our home. But we kids just loved him because whenever he'd come, he'd always have time to play with us. He'd work just long enough to get a little money, and then he'd spend it on booze. And so uh, but we loved him, and we thought he was all right. And she said, during those years, we, we just, uh, mother tried to compensate for not having a father in our home. And he, she said, I remember one time when I was about six, mother would take us upstairs, and she'd tuck each one of us in our bed, and then she'd sit and tell us stories. And he said that she said this one night, she tucked Richard in bed and kissed him, and then she tucked Tommy in bed and kissed him, and then she came over and sat in my bed and tucked me in, and then she told us some stories, and she said, we laughed so hard that night, she said, I got a pain in my stomach. And she said, my mother had to rub it out with her hand, and, and she said, then she kissed me and left. Well, during that night, Dr. McFarland, our mother passed away. The angels came and got her for some reason, and the next morning, we three children got up, went into mother's room, and she was dead. And we didn't know what to do. And so we ran down to Uncle Ben's house and told Uncle Ben, our mother has passed away. We don't know what to do. What are we going to do now? And he said, I don't know, kids, but it'll never be as good as you had. You'll never have anyone who will love you like your mother loved you. And uh, he said, but after the funeral arrangements, I'll go to see the judge and see if the judge will let me uh, take care of you. And so uh, the funeral ended and he went down to see the judge and and uh, during those years, she said, Dr. McFarland, I can't tell you what a job he has done. It's been over 20 years now. 
and he has never even been sick, not once in all of those 20 years, and he has never had a drink in all of those 20 years, and we've never heard one complaint. Now, Dr. McFarland, what I'd like you to do tonight, you know, always they ask, would all the parents of the graduating students please stand? And he said, uh, my Uncle Ben won't even sit in the parents' section. He doesn't feel like he's worthy to do that. That's a place that, you're, that, that uh, our mother ought to sit, and he doesn't feel he could do that. Would you mind asking my Uncle Ben to stand tonight at the graduate, or tomorrow night at the graduation exercise? And he said, well, Nancy, I'd love to do that. So he said the next night uh, at graduation, it was a beautiful, cool afternoon. They had it out in the stadium, and he said uh, everyone was there well ahead of time. The students, uh, the graduating students, came in and took their places. And then behind the students were the parents uh, uh, and relative section, or parents section. Then behind that, the relatives and friends section. And, and uh, he said he looked down and saw Nancy Hollingsworth on the front row. As he uh, started the... Uh, uh, as they went through the, the commencement exercise and had the the uh, opening uh, hymn and, and the other things that would take place, the, uh, the invocation and then several talks, and then finally they got around to Dr. McFarland. And he said he stood up, and as was customer, he had all the parents stand up. And all the parents stood up, and then they sat down, and he honored them. And then he said, uh, I looked down in the front row and saw Nancy Hollingsworth. And uh, he said her chin was just about on the floor. She had thought that I'd forgotten Uncle Ben. And he said, now, he said, I'd like to have all those uh, Uncle Bens who have graduates in this class please stand. <laughs> and it was very quiet, and everyone looked around, and he said uh, there was just a murmur went throughout the entire congregation of people, and nothing happened. And he said, now, hold on. I'm not going to go on with my talk until the Uncle Ben, who has a graduate in this class, please stand. And he said, way back behind the students, the graduates behind the parents, way back in the friends and relatives section, a very thin man slowly made his way to his feet. And as he stood up, it looked like everything was pulling him down, but he was being forced to stand up. With his head bowed, an, an ovation started across uh, one part of the, the stadium and, and uh, rang throughout the other part. And it lasted for several minutes as he stood there with his head bowed, somewhat ashamed of this great uh, thing that was taking place in his life. Finally, it finished, and he sat down. And then Dr. McFarland went on with the uh, talk. That after the, uh, his, the main talk at the commencement exercise, uh, each one received their diploma. Pomp and circumstance was played as the, the uh, graduates filed out. No one left. They had all been well-trained until the last graduate had left the uh, stadium. And then Dr. McFarland said, quite a few number of people came up on the stand to shake hands with me. And he said, and there, all of a sudden, was Nancy Hollingsworth. He said, I took hold of her hand, and he, she said, would you please come with me? I want you to meet my Uncle Ben. And so he said he excused himself from others and went down off of the stand and, and down, halfway down the aisle, and here was Uncle Ben coming up. He said, I, Nancy introduced me to Uncle Ben. I shook hands with him and said, now, Uncle Ben, I want to have you tell me what it was like. Just answer a couple of questions. First, what was it like when all these people were applauding you for what you had done through all those years? And he said, oh, I thought I was dreaming. He said, I thought I was asleep. And he thought, if I'm asleep and dreaming, and it's Nancy's commencement exercise night, then I've missed it. And he said, <laughs> so uh, he said, that was the first thing. And then Dr. McFarland said, well, the second question, how were you ever able ever to talk the judge into letting you take the children? As I understand it, you didn't have much of a reputation. 
And he said, well, after the funeral, we went down to see the judge. And I said to him, Judge, if you'll let me take these children, I promise you I'll never have another drink as long as I live. And then I'll get down on my knees every single day of my life, and I'll ask God to give me the gumption to keep that promise. Will you please let me take them? And the judge, he said, the judge took his glasses off. And then he looked out the window for a long moment. And then he put them back on, and he said, Ben, I'll go with that. We'll put you on probation for about six weeks. And if you can keep that promise, then we'll make the children permanent. He said, we went home after that, and he said, we got inside of the house, we talked for a minute, and then the three children and I knelt down together, and we prayed to the God of heaven to give me the gumption to live the way that I promised the judge I would. And he said, the five of us have been going along ever since. Well, I believe the man of Christ would be that kind of an individual when it required his life would change and conform to those principles. Now, there are many other things we can talk about. I believe the man of Christ would have an unparalleled commitment. I think he would have total faith. I believe he would have a pure heart and a soul. I believe he would have reverence for the Savior if he was a man of Christ. Now, I'd like to share with you my testimony about one particular, the man of Christ, President Spencer W. Kimball. I know of no one on the face of the earth who comes nearer measuring to the total stature of the man of Christ than Spencer W. Kimball. I have an absolute witness and assurance that President Spencer W. Kimball is a prophet of God, and I know that he is only a whisper away from the Savior, Jesus Christ, whose church this is. May we all, young men and young women, become a man of Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.